All right, hey, welcome. Uh, thanks for coming to Sunday Night Equip. I love Sunday Night Services. Gathering with the people of God is one of the highlights of my week. So when we get to do it twice, that's a good week. Uh, and the intent for these, we'll do these four to six times a year and tackle different sorts of topics that we can't tackle on a normal Sunday morning. Uh, and they'll range. Sometimes we'll get real nerdy and geeky and go deep in theology or church history. Uh, sometimes we'll do current issues like technology or parenting te- and technology or even I think maybe in the spring or maybe this fall we're going to tackle transgenderism and just talk about that and things that we as the church need to be talking about that we don't often get to uh, or practical things like family worship or tonight disciple making. So I call tonight the great omission instead of the great commission because I'm afraid the majority of churches in America are missing the primary calling of their king. I mentioned several weeks ago this study that they released at this year's Southern Baptist annual meeting, and they had issued this task force to say, hey, how are we doing as a denomination when it comes to discipleship? And their findings were uh, disheartening. They found out that over the last 20 years, they had baptized 7.1 million people. And you think, hey, that's awesome. That is awesome. But as they looked into attendance in our churches over those same 20 years, we lost 20,000. Think about that. Baptized 7.1 million, yet lost 20,000 in weekly average attendance. It should have been 7 million in the game, right? And we lost. You heard me right. So I think it's a problem. And I think part of our problem is we have focused on merely decisions rather than disciples, I think it stems from a faulty view of conversion, a faulty view of what a Christian is, and just a a desire to want to hurry and rush and get someone to pray a prayer and make a decision without thinking through what it is to be a Christian and follow Jesus. And and you've all experienced this. I remember the time I I saw it most clearly when I was a new believer. I was a sophomore in college, I think, maybe a junior. And so a new believer and learning the Bible and growing my understanding of what the gospel was and what Christ called us to and took a 10-day mission trip to New York City. Stayed in a hostel before all those hostel movies came out. Um, it was interesting. Another story for another day. But anyway, my team that I went with, it was college students all over Texas kind of came together. And they were really there for tourism. Um, and honestly, so many mission trips are really just tourism. And so they were off like going to the late show and going to these various things. And I thought, I raised money. I had people give money. Uh, and so I just went on my own and I took a subway to various places and mostly just played basketball and tried to meet people in some of these famous uh, some of these famous streetball courts. It was a lot of fun. Well, one of them, I went over to Queens, and one of them, uh, there was a, just a bunch of uh, adult white people and a bunch of just all kinds of nationalities of children. And really clearly you could see what was going on. They were having uh, VBS over there. And so uh, there was really no adults because the kids were all over the court. So I was kind of, I went there. It was one of the courts I'd heard of and went, and it was, a, you know, no good for me. But I struck up a conversation before I left, and Sure enough, it was uh, some leaders and some, a lot of uh, lay members that had taken a trip, mission trip, and it was from a big megachurch in the Metroplex. They were from Texas. And so I said, well, what's going on? And he, the guy that I just happened to talk to just starts bragging about how many numbers they had seen. And I don't remember what it was. It was significant, though, and there were kids everywhere. I think it was in the 80s. You know, we've seen 80 people come to Christ, 80 kids come to Christ. And I'll praise the Lord. Uh, what's the next step? Like, y'all are going to go and go back to Texas and announce it to your church, and everybody's going to clap. Uh, for all these notches in the bell, but what about these people that have like Muslim parents and everything else? Are you just going to, is there any type of follow-up? Is there any type of connection to the local church? 
And he was like, no, 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 our job's just to get them in the door and we, we go back home. It's an extremely faulty view of conversion and discipleship. It's just merely driven by a desire to get these kids to pray a prayer. We can go back home and leave it as it is. Even last week, I preached at a local FCA, and there was a group that had come through, and they saw 25 people make decisions. And my same question, tell me about the follow-up. Tell me about the follow-up. How, what's the follow-up for these people? Because they came in and they left town. And uh, I don't know. That's a good question. So this is part of our problem, I think. This is why we're quick to baptize 7 million people, yet our churches are actually shrinking by 20,000 because we've been too quick to just try to get someone to pray a prayer and less effective at actually making disciples. We've been focused on decisions, not disciples. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. Uh, The word Christian actually only occurs three times to refer to us. Someone want to guess how many times the the word, the noun disciple is used to talk about us? Just throw it out. (laughs) Cheater. Exactly. 269. Boom. That's our intern right there. He's on his his game. Think about that for a minute. You know, we all say Christian, and that's fine. I don't think we ought to stop saying that. Although I try to say follower of Christ or Jesus follower instead of just Christian here. But think about that for a minute. Christian is only used three times, yet a disciple, which means learner, a follower, is used 269 times. That's significant. The New Testament could have been a whole lot shorter if it was all simply about praying a prayer and waiting to die. But there's a lot more to say. So here's the plan for tonight. I want us to look at two passages and then talk about some tips. First, though, let me just ask this. When I say the Great Commission, what's the first word that comes to your mind? Go. Go. What else? Therefore. Therefore. Okay, what else? These are, these are good answers. Matthew. Evangelism. Teach. These are great answers. This is why I love Southside. When I ask this question in other contexts, it's usually Africa. That's the, that's the main thing I hear when I say, what's the first word when I say Great Commission? Usually it's Africa. I don't know why it's always Africa, not Asia or other places. I think in, part of our problem in the church, I think, is when we think Great Commission, we think over there instead of right here. But we are the nations. In the Great Commission passage, we are the nations. It started there, go and make disciples of all nations, meaning non-Jewish peoples, and that's where we are. We are the ends of the earth. Acts 1 says the gospel would go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We are the ends of the earth here in Texas. Now listen, there's still tons of work to do in global missions. Yes and amen, especially in the 1040 window. I think that needs to be our focus and priority But this verse, go ahead and turn there if you want, Matthew 28, is not a merely missionary verse. It's a Christian verse. It's a command for all disciples. Matthew chapter 28. Let's read together. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus' last words in the gospel here. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus' last words, they're called great for good reason. Notice what's the foundation of the Great Commission. It's there in verse 18. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the foundation. That's why that therefore is so important. Because Jesus has all authority, the foundation is his authority. And when is this supposed to happen? Verse 19, he says, go, therefore. But here's something that's important as well. I think one of the reasons why we miss this sometimes is this is actually not uh, the main point. And it's not even really the main verb. It's actually a participle for you English folks that modifies the main verb. So the main command is not go. These other words in here are also participles. Usually the way we know what a participle is is by the, uh, the letters I and G, so running. So here we have baptizing, teaching. It should be going. And the idea is whenever you go or wherever you go or as you go. Going, and the main verb here is the main command is make disciples. So if you were to structure this out in terms of like English grammar to diagram it, the main point, main verb, it's an active imperative. If you're preaching or teaching in like, you know, seminary training, that's what you're looking for. That's what you're going to hang your sermon on is that active imperative. Make disciples is the main point and everything else modifies it. They're participles that modify the main verb. So make disciples as you go, baptizing, teaching. So that is the main point. Let's look at it there again. Look at 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always. So make disciples. And I think also part of our confusion is we tend to think of various things when we hear discipleship. We'll think of a program or, or a plan or a certain system or whatever. I think the best way to define discipleship biblically is merely simply helping others follow Jesus. What is disciple making? It's just helping one another follow Jesus. Trying to move them from wherever they are to where Jesus wants them. To push them in that direction even if it's one step. Helping others submit every area of their life to his lordship. Helping them become more and more committed to Christ in all areas of life. And all of us, really every person, we need to be discipled. We need to grow. We need to continually submit every area of our lives to the Lord. And so disciple making or discipleship is just helping others do that. And part of making disciples here is baptizing them when they come to faith. And then once they're baptized, we teach them to observe everything Jesus commanded. That's part of the modify. We go as we're going, wherever we go, we baptize and then we teach. And so we cannot stop with someone making a decision. We cannot stop with someone merely praying a prayer. That's nowhere in here. That's just not on the agenda. It's making disciples and teaching them everything Jesus commanded. So the, the baptism is not the end game. It's just the beginning. So again, not decisions, but disciples. We teach others what Jesus commanded. You know what part of what Jesus commanded is? To make disciples. It's kind of the main thing. It's the great commission. And so we teach disciples that part of what Jesus commanded was to make disciples. So disciples are those who make disciples, who make disciples, who 
make disciples. That's how the church spread. That's how it continues to spread. I love how Michael Green uh, speaks of the expansion of the gospel and the growth of the early church. He says this. I think we got a slide for you. There you go. The gospel spread most of all by the enthusiastic witness of the nameless people who loved Jesus and could not keep quiet about him. It was a people movement. This early Christianity, that is why it succeeded. It did not depend on big names, but on little people who had a big God and were not afraid to put into test as they went out in his name. And if that is not a challenge and a rebuke to the modern church, I do not know what is. So this is what I want us to hear this morning. I want us to hear that every Christian is commanded to make disciples. Every disciple is commanded to make disciples, to help people follow Jesus. We're all commanded to do that. No disciple is exempt from this work. And so the hard question for us that I want us to kind of examine ourselves is according to this verse, according to this great commission, am I a disciple of Jesus? Because according to this definition, a disciple is someone who makes disciples. Are you a disciple of Jesus? So I'll let that sit for a minute. Another way to ask it is, is Jesus really Lord? He says in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? I think we ought to hear that. We call him Lord. Why do we call him Lord if we don't do what he says? Now, I don't want to guilt you too bad. Some guilt is legitimate. I don't really want to guilt you, though. I want you to resolve to change the trajectory of your life if you're not obeying your Lord in this most crucial regard. And I worry sometimes about churches like ours, churches like ours that take Scripture so seriously, strong teaching. Uh, We love the teaching of the Word. But the danger can be that we get too busy learning and don't obey what we already know and end up like the Pharisees or even Jonah. We know a lot of Bible in here. So maybe we ought to stop focusing so much on learning more and focus a little more about obeying what we already know. I like the illustration Francis Chan gives. He, he talks about teaching his kids to uh, clean his room. And so just to personalize it, if I tell my kids, hey, clean your room, go, go clean your room. And I go off to work and I come back home, you know, eight hours later and it's not clean, which wouldn't happen in our house due to mama bear. But let's say that happened. Came home, the room's not clean. And I come in and I speak probably with Josiah, our oldest, as the spokesman of the crew, and said, hey, how come y'all didn't clean the rooms? And so he says, well, here's what we did, Dad. We, we got together and we, we assembled together, the crew, you know, all, all five of us, and, uh, and we talked about it. We talked about your commands, go clean your room. And, and we asked, like, hey, what, what does, we did a word study. What does the word clean? <laughs> like, in that context, what does clean mean? I wonder what the author's intention was there. And we, we memorized it, like we spent some time and we memorized it. And, man, we even went to the Greek and we looked at, at what the Greek was. And then we dismissed. And we're going to meet next week and we're going to talk about that command. <laughs> I don't want them studying my command. I want them obeying my commands. So that's the command. That's the main verb, make disciples. And this is a disciple verse. But then notice the assurance there in chapter 20 at the end. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age. I don't think we can have the assurance of I am with you always if we don't have the first part as you go make disciples. 
So it's the Great Commission. It's not merely a missionary verse. It's a Christian verse. And so the challenge I want you to hear is, is how are you doing with the Great Commission? Then turning over to our second passage, I want us to think about us growing as a church. We won't grow as a church without obeying the Lord. And I'm not talking about numerical growth. That is not a concern of mine and the elders. We got our hands full. If that comes, praise the Lord. I'm talking about quantitative growth, growing up in, in holiness as a church. And we see the vital role of every member obeying the Lord in Ephesians chapter 4. So turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Ephesians 4.11, this is a life verse for me. I hope it will be for you. And I just want us to read it and make four quick observations. Ephesians 4.11. And Jesus, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes rather speaking the truth in love we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the kind of growth I'm talking about, the, the gospel growth. And so let me make four quick observations here. Number one, notice we didn't start in verse 7, but it speaks of the Christ who's the victor. The victorious Christ gives gifts to his church. What's his plan for the church is to give gifts. And he names them there in verse 11. He gave apostles and prophets. I think those were foundational roles that we have in the New Testament now. He gives evangelists, those focused on the promotion of the gospel, and then shepherds and teachers, probably one off is the, the shepherd teachers, the pastor teachers, the elders really is what we're talking about. The pastors or the elders or the overseers. He gives gifts to his church. Second observation, for what purpose does he give gifts to his church? It's there in verse 12. To equip the saints. He gives gifts to his church and pastors and elders, teachers, to equip the saints. Who's the saints? It's everybody, right? Roman, the whole Roman Catholic deal is way off. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. So if you're a believer, you're a saint. So the church is given gifts to equip the saints. And what does it say there? Look again at verse 12. For the work of ministry. He equips the saints for the work of ministry. What kind of ministry? I think a lot of times churches just focus on like events, you know, like Sunday morning and praise God, those are good things. As you know, we need more people serving on Sunday mornings to help us pull off services and Wednesday night and all that. I think that's where too many churches focus and end, but the real work of ministry is the people work. The priority and focus needs to be on discipleship, on helping one another follow Jesus. For building each other up. Notice how he says, look at 12 again. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. What's that? For building up the body of Christ. That's the work we're talking about. We build each other. Every Christian equipped by the teaching of God's word is called to build one another up. And then the third observation, what's the goal of the teaching that builds, that equips the saint, that builds one another? It's in verse 13. 
The goal is that we would attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Another way to say that's just maturity, Christian maturity. What's the goal? That we would build one another up so that we would mature as Christians. And he mentions unity, he mentions doctrine, he mentions the knowledge of Christ, and he mentions Christ-likeness, that we would be more like Jesus. That's, that's the goal. And then notice, again, more goal there in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. So to grow in Christian doctrine, so that we won't be blown about by every teaching that comes away, but that we'd be standing on the solid rock of Christ and what he teaches. So that's the goal. And then what's our role? Verse 15. Instead of being blown about, rather, verse 15, and this is for all of us, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. I think sometimes we think this verse is like saying a hard word to somebody. I just, I just got to speak the truth in love. Let me tell you. And we, it's confrontation. I think that's part of it. But I think the primary thing Paul's thinking of here in Ephesians 4 is the truth of Jesus. Because look at verse 21. He defines the truth as Jesus. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. We speak the truth in love. We speak Jesus to one another. All of us prayerfully speaking of Jesus together, and we do it in love. We give of self for the good of another. What's the good here? Christ-likeness. So that we might grow up in Christ-likeness. And now who's this for? Look up at verse 7 where it really starts. We didn't start there, but grace was given to each one of us. Every believer has received grace, has received gift to do what the apostle's calling us to do here. Look down at verse 16, that last verse. Jesus, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is what I mean by we just won't grow if each part isn't doing its work of speaking the truth prayerfully to one another in love so that we might all grow in maturity of Christ. This is God's plan. This is why we exist. God's plan is to redeem a people that would reflect his son. And he saved us from sin and saved us to ministry, all of us. According to this verse, the pastors don't do ministry. The saints do. The pastors equip the saints for the ministry. Okay, so that's, that's the verses. Matthew, tw Matthew 28, Great Commission, Ephesians 4, we each play our part and help one another grow. Now, let's talk tips here. One of the main ways that I want to see us grow in, in Southside is through D groups. I've talked about it a few times. There's a section on our website that we'll beef out some, but under ministries, you can find D groups. D groups are merely groups of two to five or so. One-on-one uh, -on -one is great, but if you want three or four or five, I think that's great too. Two to five same-gendered groups that meet weekly with the purpose of Ephesians 4, with the purpose of helping one another grow in godliness. So what could it look like? I want to get real practical here. It could look like finding a person, meeting with them, talk about the Bible together, or talk about another book together, ask questions of the book or the Bible, talk through it 20, 30 minutes, plan the next meeting, and pray. And you can do this, and you can do this with anybody. You can do this with a non-Christian. 
What better way than to read the Bible with a non-Christian? They're open to it. There was a study a few years back by the Southern Baptist Convention that asked uh, unchurched people if they'd be willing to study the Bible if a Christian friend asked them to study the Bible, and 42% said yes. So there's an openness. So you can do it with non-Christians, but my focus the rest of the night is going to be on with one another, with the members of Southside Baptist Church. And so you find somebody you know. Connect with them, go get coffee, whatever it is. These meetings can be an hour. They can really even be 45 minutes. They can go an hour and a half. And so let's say you used a book. Uh, we like books uh, at Southside. We've got a book table out here. We've got on our website, we've got recommended resources. And we've worked really hard to put books on there that are solid, for one. There's a lot of crud books out there. These are solid books. And they're also short. And so 100 to 150 pages, we've tried to keep them in there. So they're not intimidating. They're very uh, accessible. And so maybe you sit down with a book and you read a Christian book together that does a lot of synthesizing of Scripture and sound doctrine. And you sit down and you catch up with one another and then you talk about the book and you ask questions. Hey, what was helpful to you? What was challenging to you? What was convicting to you? What was confusing to you? What did you disagree with? Were there any verses in the book that we can go and open the Bible and read them together? So we've got a lot of options there for books, but I'm going to spend a little time here talking about one-to-one Bible reading. This way you would find someone, pick a book of the Bible, sit down, pick five to ten verses. When I do this with people, I actually like to not prepare. So it requires no homework, no preparation. You just sit down with a brother or sister, open up a book, read five to ten verses or more, whatever you want. There's no wrong way to engage the Word of God together. Read the passage and then talk about it. And here's where I want to give you a few practical tips on on how you can do that. So you get together, read it, maybe it's your first time together, and then here's some things you can use. And this is way more than you would need. It's amazing how fast 30 or 40 minutes goes. But let me mention three ways that you can engage the Word together in one-to-one Bible reading. Number one, uh, what's been called the Swedish method. Swedish method is where you open up a book of the Bible, read a section of Scripture together, and then use the Swedish method. So maybe if you do it together, you can do it there. Or maybe you did it at home, and you have a light bulb, a question mark, and an arrow. Light bulb, this is something that shines from the passage. Whatever impacts most or draws attention, maybe you write down one or two light bulbs from the passage. Talk about them together. What were your light bulbs? Number two, question mark. Anything that's difficult to understand in the text or a question the reader would like to ask the writer of the passage or the Lord, something that's unclear. And so maybe you write two or three question marks. And then number three, an arrow, a personal application for the reader's life. Okay, what, what does this mean to me? What does this reading mean we need to, to work on this week? And then finish up, ask how you can pray for other, one another that week, and do it again next week with the next section of Scripture. That's the Swedish method. All right, the coma method. Not the best Bible reading name, coma, but here it is. Context, observation, meaning, application. So you look at the context and you say, okay, what came before? What came after? What book of the Bible? Who wrote it? What's the purpose? Asking them together, working through the passage. Observation, what do you see? Like what's here? Are there sections or subsections or key words or or connecting words? Meaning, okay, why is it there? That's our interpretation part. What does it mean? What is God speaking to us through his word and then application? What does it have for me to do or change my thinking or my doing? Uh, Coma, we'll we'll update our website so that these are on that D groups page, but really simple, right? And you can do that 25, 30, 35 minutes, pray, go home, do it again next week. And here's my my preference, uh, my preference of method, and it's uh, not as clever name, it's just OIA, observation, interpretation, application. 
So sit down. What does it say? Again, that's just looking at it, reading it. All right. It says A, B, C, and D. Interpretation, what does it mean? And then application, what does it mean to me? Now let me just go through a few questions we can ask under each of these that, again, we'll put on our website soon. Uh, observation, what does it say? And so under this section, we could ask things like, hey, who wrote it? Why'd they write it? Who's the author? What's the purpose? What's the situation? What's the context? What's right before it? What's right after? What book is it in? What section of Scripture? What, is it in the New Testament, Old Testament, that sort of thing? Um, what are the key words? Or you can scrap all that and you can ask these questions. Who, what, when, where, why? And just ask those questions of the Bible together. Okay, interpretation. What does it mean? Here's a few questions we could think of. I already mentioned some of them, but what are the sections, subsections? Are there any connecting words like for or therefore or because? Uh, what's the main point? That's a great question to ask. What's the main point or points of this passage? What did you come up with? Uh, is anything unclear? Are there any key cross-references? Are there any key quotations of the Old Testament that helps us understand what the author's saying there? Uh, what, how does this passage relate to Jesus, especially if you're in the Old Testament? Well, how is Christ in this passage? Or what do we learn about God from this passage? Or what do we learn about people from this passage? Or um, what do we learn about relating to God? These are from a book the deacons are going through right now called Asking the Right Questions. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about people? What do we learn about relating to God from this passage? What do we learn about relating to people from this passage? This is way more than you need for an hour meeting, I promise you. I just want to give you tools and tips. You can reduce this down to just a few under each. And then application. What does it mean to me? What does God want me to believe from this passage? What does God want me to understand from this passage? What does God want me to desire? I like that question. We often think of application of what do I need to do, but what does God want to change my affections and my emotions and, and desires? Do I need to change my attitude in any way because of this passage? And then finally, what does God want me to do? So you can think about your, your or you could do it this way, you get together under application, head, heart, hands. What does God want me to think and believe? What does God want me to feel and, and, and desire? And then what does he want me to do? Let me read this quote to you by a book, uh, one of my favorite books called The Trellis and the Vine. The image is, of course, you know, all know the trellis, right? It's the, it's the wood. Trellises are not an end to themselves. And trellises are our various ministry programs. But the real stuff is the vine. That's that people work. That's that one another. That's that prayerfully speaking the word to one another in love. So we need trellises, but if we don't have the real stuff, the vine, we're in trouble. So notice what they say here. They say, imagine if all Christians as a normal part of their discipleship were caught up in a web of regular Bible reading, not only digging into the word privately, but reading it with their children before bed, with their spouse over breakfast, with a non-Christian colleague at work once a week over lunch, with a new Christian for follow-up once a fortnight, they're from Australia, for mutual encouragement, with a mature Christian friend once a month for mutual encouragement. It would be a chaotic web of personal relationships, prayer, and Bible reading, more of a movement than a program. But at another level, it would be profoundly simple and within reach of all. It's an exciting thought. Yes and amen. So how do you get started? This is probably the hardest part is getting going. So first I just say pray and ask, Lord, am I, how am I doing in terms of being a disciple? Am I making disciples? Second, just find a person. 
Whether that's a friend, whether that's an unbeliever, whether that's a coworker, whether that's someone in your home group that, you know, because home groups are great. I love home groups. I, ho- I hope our home groups continue to grow. But there are just certain things men you won't say when there are women around. And women, there are just certain things you're not going to get into when men are around. That's why the importance of the same gender, going a level deeper than a home group or a class. And so maybe it's someone from your home group. That's, that's a real organic way. Maybe someone from your Bible study class. Maybe someone from a ministry team. This is the hardest part is the ask. Hey, you want to do a D group together for six months, for a year, for weeks? I mean, whatever. Again, there's no wrong way here. That's the beauty of it. Just think if you did that, think of everyone in here grabs another person and says, hey, let's go through the book of Philippians together in eight weeks. And then both of you go and do it with someone else. And then both of y'all go and do it with someone else. I mean, that's why it could become a movement. I would love in two years for the culture of Southside that this is just what we do. We get together and we prayerfully speak the word to one another and we get real and we confess sin and we turn from it and we hold each other accountable and we memorize scripture. It's exciting. So this is the hardest part, but let the authority of the risen Lord Jesus be your motivator. Make disciples. So plan, find a person, plan to meet, whatever works, wherever, in your living room, at a coffee shop, over lunch, doesn't matter. There's no wrong way. Make a plan to meet. Hey, let's start this Wednesday, 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. See you there. Find a time, find a spot, pick a book or a book of the Bible. Get to work. It'll be a little awkward, a little uncomfortable at first. That's okay. Everything is. Everything worth doing is a little bit hard, but it gets easier with practice. And so let's obey the Lord. Disciples must make disciples. Jesus commands it. The church will not grow without it. And ultimately, this is where you're going to find joy. This is what you were made for. There is no greater joy than to helping someone else follow Jesus. The authors of Trellis and the Vine, again, they say disciple-making then refers to a massive range of relationships and conversations and activities. Everything from preaching a sermon to teaching a Sunday school class, from chatting over the proverbial back fence with a non-Christian neighbor to writing an encouraging note to a Christian friend, from inviting a family member to hear the gospel at a church event to meeting one-to-one to study the Bible with a fellow Christian, from reading the Bible to your children to making a Christian comment over morning tea at the office, prayerfully speaking the word to one another. And you can do it. You have everything you need to do it. It's really two things. It's the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And if you're a believer, you have both of those things. And the good news is that seeing gospel growth in others is really not dependent upon us. I think that's another uh, hesitating factor for us is I just don't have anything to offer. Yes, you do. You're lying if you say that. The Lord thinks you do, Ephesians chapter 4. To each has been given grace so that we might build one another up in love. And so the beauty of it is the Spirit uses His Word. He just does. It's not about us. It's about His Word. He will grow one another through us jars of clay, us earthen vessels. So trust the power of the Spirit through the Word. God will honor your commitment to joining Him in His grand purpose. Disciple-making. We've got a little bit of time. Any questions, comments, clarifications on D groups in particular or any of this? Yeah, good question. Does, does one person need to be more mature and the other less mature uh, or more on the same page? I would say yes. Yeah, 
especially when we define discipleship as helping one another follow Jesus. We gave the home group leaders a book called Side by Side. Um, I think the subtitle is People in Need of Help. Is that anybody in this room? Better get those hands up. People in Need of Help, Helping People in Need of Help. So all of us need this, need one another, and Jesus expects it of all of us. Now, it also can be when you see someone, they just come to faith, uh, that would be great, or someone on down the line, I'm thinking of like Titus 2 women, someone who's been through uh, child raising and, and marriage and has some wisdom. I would love to see more of that. We've got a lot of young moms in here, and so I'd love to see more of that. It can be that, but I never, I've never talked about I'm going to disciple you, you know, like there's this disciplee, discipler, because the truth of it is I am discipled as much as anyone that I'm discipling because we're around the word and the spirit loves to use the word. Any others? Oh, yes. Thank you. Great question. D groups are short for discipleship groups. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's on our website. And again, the idea is small groups, same gender, intentionally meeting together to help one another follow the Lord. And we all need help following the Lord. Yeah. Okay. So any particular book of the Bible? Um, man, yes. <laughs> um, I, I like some of the shorter ones at first, especially. Uh, Philippians is fantastic. Um, Ephesians, Romans, a gospel. Uh, I would say starting in the New Testament would be probably my general advice and probably not Revelation, but almost anything else. Uh, I think you can't go wrong, but I do like Philippians, four chapters, all about the gospel. And it also depends on the person, you know, if it's a newer believer, Philippians would be great. If it's someone that's more mature, man. Tackle Romans. Yeah. I would go with, you're asking which book of the Bible with a non-believer. I would go with the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Gospel of Mark because it's shorter and it's all about Jesus. Uh, there's some other curriculum called Exploring Christianity that uses the Gospel of Mark that's actually geared for unbelievers, for a believer taking an unbeliever. It's probably the best there is out there, Exploring Christianity. They use Mark. You don't go through all of it, but it's a good way to introduce people. And this is what we want, right? We want people engaging the word. God has promised to use his spirit to transform his people through the word. So it excites me. I hope it excites you. Um, real quick, how many of you would say that you are closer with the Lord because someone intentionally, intentionally invested in you? Raise your hand. Boom. Do you think they had it all together? Not a chance. And so neither do you. And you can be used of the Lord. This is the beauty of it. God uses his people. And again, what greater joy is there than to help one another follow Jesus? Jesus only tells the truth. He does not lie. And so will he say of your life, well done, good and faithful servant. Life is short. Life is frustratingly short. And so we're going to end our lives sooner than we want to admit and so will we say, I wish I had dot, 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 spent my life in things that will matter for eternity? Or will we say, I'm so glad I did. You have all you need to do it, and we need you. As each part does its work, we will grow into maturity.